right, you guys ready to start? Let's do it. So, welcome. If it's your first time, especially welcome. We do this every week. Um, <clears throat> the food is always something new and different. So some weeks it's stew, some weeks it's pasta, some weeks it's a dish that I don't even know what it is, but it's delicious. Um, the, the kitchen staff, the ladies in the back, each week they prepare the food for us. And um, so we ask that you, food's free, but we would love for you to leave them a tip. All the stuff that goes in the donation jar right there goes straight to them. And so it's a way of us saying thank you for the hospitality that they show serving this food each and every week. And it helps to ensure that we can continue doing this. So uh, feel free to be generous to them. They've been generous to us for going on, what, eight years now, seven years, something like that? Uh, four years at least that I've been part of it. And so if you are coming in, you're coming into a long, multi-year Bible study. We take our time. We're not in a rush. Uh, we, I don't have a sermon series I'm trying to fill out or uh, programming that we're trying to work around. We just take our time and we walk through the Bible. That's what this is. This is a walking tour through the Old Testament. And we're in the Old Testament book of Numbers. And Numbers is the book that tells the story of Israel becoming um, a nation after being slaves for 400 years and coming into uh, a place of the wilderness where God prepared them and transformed them. And then He will send them into the promised land. The reason he's doing that is because the promised land, not just because he promised it to Abraham, but also because he promised judgment upon certain peoples in that land. And Israel is his instrument of judgment. And so uh, he, is, he is honing them, he is forming them, he's shaping them into his army uh, that's going to carry out this mission. And at the same time, that's how his promise will be fulfilled to their ancestor Abraham, that his offspring would live in that land. So it's important to keep in mind this big overarching picture of the Bible, and that's why I constantly bring it up each and every week. If you lose sight of the big picture, then you can get lost in the woods. You can get lost in the chapters, and you can start going down rabbit trails that Scripture is not even really that concerned about. So if you always keep in mind the big picture, it helps you to make sense of all of the little pieces. When I teach on the Bible interpretation in my Bible for the Rest of Us class, I teach people, think of it like a jigsaw puzzle. You don't start a jigsaw puzzle by grabbing random pieces and trying to stick them together. You start a jigsaw puzzle by locating the edges, the corner pieces, and filling those in first. Then you start filling in the center. And when you come to a piece you don't know what to do with it, just set it aside because you know it'll make sense later. And that's how it is with Bible study. The same way. Get the big picture. Get the outline. Get the story. Then start filling in the other stuff. People think that biblical faith is about a set of rules to keep or even just this nebulous concept of relationship. You know, it's not religion. It's relationship. Well, yeah, but why? Who cares? Why is that even important? Right? We don't want to devolve into either legalism or existential feel-goodism. We want to say, no, the Bible tells us a story and we are located within that story. So we need to know the story if we want to have that relationship and if we want to know how to live in light of that relationship. So it's one of those balances that we have to do well, uh, we have to do a better job of as Christians in holding, keeping the story front and center. And <clears throat> so in this part of the story, Israel has come, they've had these incredible victories over these uh, pagan 
forces that came against them who they were not sent to judge. They were not sent to make war on and they didn't want to make war on. They actually said, look, we just want to pass through. Just let us pass through. Just, just let us by. We're not even going to stay here. We'll even pay back any water we use or any, uh, any food that we eat that belongs to people in your area. We just want to go through. Those two groups said no. And not only can you not go through, but we're going to actually come and attack you. And uh, they did. And these were powerful groups. And God gave Israel victory, like a dominant victory, over these two incredibly powerful groups of people. So now another two people groups have come together, the Moabites and the Midianites, and they've said, hey, we're in trouble. This is a national catastrophe. We are, these, these invaders are coming into our land and they are going to overwhelm us. So we have to put our national safety first. And what they did was, there was a person that we've met in the pre- previous two chapters, a, a, a known sorcerer, conjurer, soothsayer, prophet, diviner. He had all of these different titles and appellations, but basically he was someone who was, had a reputation for being able to speak into the supernatural realm and affect things on the ground. That's the simplest way to put it. And so he's known, his name is Bilaam. The New Testament calls, spells it Balaam, and that's where the pronunciation comes from, is later Greek. But his Hebrew name is Bilaam. And Bilaam, had, we know about him from other ancient Near East sources. We looked at those a couple of weeks ago, how we actually have him written in plaster, in inscriptions from this area, later than this time period, but knowing or showing that he had a reputation. He was an international uh, hitman in the spirit realm. And so they call him in to do a hit on this army too. Because the belief was, if the army, if the, if the gods over a people abandon that people or, or, or just kind of step back from that people, then the gods of the other people who are fighting them will have a better chance of winning. Because all warfare on earth was uh, based on warfare in heaven in the ancient Near East. So, you know, if Babylon beat Assyria, it's because Babylon's army, their gods were stronger than the Assyrian gods, and their gods gave the army the victory. That's how it worked in the mindset of the ancient Near East. So, God's stepping into that, and He's, he's going to use this pagan prophet to show that, yeah, unlike these other ancient Near East gods, He's not fickle, He's not geographically bound, and He is not able to be manipulated in any way, shape, or form. And He does that through one of these uh, encounters between this pagan prophet and this pagan king who's trying to attack, overthrow, curse the people of God, the, the descendants of Abraham. And so that's where we are. So Bilaam made this, uh, he, he, he took, or, or Balak took Bilaam up to this point where he could see all of the people, all of Israel, overlook him, and he says, okay, have at it. Do your thing. Bring down the thunder, you know, whatever you're going to do. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 23, verse 1. Bilaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Bilaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. This is the only time that seven altars are ever built in the Bible. Seven is an ancient Near East number. It connotes completion, wholeness, perfection. I mean, if you want to really do something, you do it to the sevens. Right? Like, I think we say, like, dress to the nines or something like that. You know, we have these phrases. Well, the concept in the ancient Near East, seven, that's the lucky number. And that, I mean, that's where our modern day gambling 
concepts come from, is seven is the lucky number. Because in the ancient Near East, seven was the God's number. It was the number of wholeness. So, we're not going to do one altar. Because remember, Balak has pointed out all the stops. He does not know this other God that Bilaam knows. And he just thinks, well, the God's in my culture. You know, God's like Baal and Chemosh and Asherah and these others. They can be manipulated. They can be appeased. If you do a better offering than somebody else, they're going to listen to you over that other person. You can gain their favor. You can manipulate the gods to do what you want. That's the difference between magic and prophecy. In the Bible, you cannot manipulate God. Even through pious things, worship, fasting, prayer, none of that stuff matters if the relationship with God is not one of submission to His will. And, and, a, and a, an ability to say, God, this is what I want, but I will go with what you have, but this is what I'd like. That is a different. That's supplication. Trying to say, and this is where you get the, 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 the crazy, just diabolical faith healer people. You know, you send me $20, I'll give you this miracle water. And, and then you sprinkle it on yourself and you'll get that new car or whatever. Um, that guy's literally still selling that stuff, by the way. He got busted years ago using an uh, earpiece to, to call out people in the audience, Peter Popoff. Somebody uh, today or this week posted a video on Facebook. What do you think of this guy? I was like, I think he's a fraud, and I didn't say it, but I think there's a really hot place in hell if he doesn't repent. Um, <laughs> and that's with any preacher, with any teacher. You are not, be, just beware. Sometimes it's couched in faith language, and that's when it's most insidious. Beware of trying to manipulate God to get what you want. Because that's not the same as asking God for something that you want, but being willing to yield to His will and saying, well, He may very well want me poor. He may very well want you poor. Or sick. Or some other condition that He says, my grace is sufficient for you. As He did for Paul. As He did for the prophets of the Old Testament. So, always keep that in mind. But Balak doesn't know that. He's used to the world of the ancient Near East where the gods do what you want when you just appease them and offer them the biggest gift. So, they build this big sacrificial ritual. Seven altars, a bull and a ram. Remember, those are the two highest forms of offering in the ancient Near East. Going back in Leviticus, that's what the king and the priest offered when they were uh, giving their burnt offering was a bull and a ram. Those are, the, those are, like, the, those are like the Cadillac or the, what's today's equivalent of Cadillacs in the 70s? There's like the Tesla of offerings, or, or however you want to put it. And so, uh, they build the altar. Then, verse 3, Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offering, or literally stand by your offering. And that doesn't mean you stay here, i got to go do something. It's when you stand by your offering, that is a sense of identifying with your offering if you're making a supplication. Standing in the, so he is, he is symbolically, Balaam is telling Balak, stand in the place as a proxy for your people this sacrifice that you're offering and then he says um, I will go aside perhaps Yahweh the Lord he's not talking about a pagan God remember Bilaam knows Yahweh we don't we don't know how we don't know what his relationship with but we know that he has a genuine communication with Yahweh the God of Israel and that's what we talked about last week he says perhaps Yahweh will come meet with me Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height or a worn path, or the words translated differently. It's just kind of this by itself place. <clears throat> Verse 4, God met with him. And Bilaam said, I've prepared seven altars, and on each altar I've offered a bull and a ram. God doesn't even acknowledge that. 
verse 5, the Lord, Yahweh, put a message in Bilaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. Uh, put words into his mouth is a phrase that's used of some of the prophets in the Old Testament. It means God gave him, this is what you're going to say. Now, this is the first time this is going to happen. This is going to happen three times. And as we saw last week, now Bilaam is going to be in the place where his donkey was in the previous chapter. Caught between what God's declaring and what another person wants to happen. Just as the donkey was caught between the angel of the Lord and Bilaam who wanted to get to where his payday was. So now he's kind of, that's, he's, he's reliving basically. And he's learned his lesson from the donkey in this section. Because um, he goes on to say verse 6, So he went back to him and found him standing by his offering with all the princes or the chiefs or the high men or whatever you want to call them of Moab. Then Bilaam uttered this oracle. Oracle. This is a fun word. The, the word for this is mashal. And that's actually the, the title of the book of Proverbs. Um, this is a proverb or a saying or, or it's something that is poetic, cryptic, and meant to be pondered. Um, so it's not just like, let me tell you just what God said. No, this is, this is, some, this is why we have it, uh, uh, most likely why I have it preserved. It was because it's poetic. <clears throat> and he gives it to him in standard Hebrew poetic form. Or at least that's what we have here. This is how Hebrew poetry works in general. And this applies to the prophets, the Psalms, uh, some of the Proverbs, you know, the wisdom literature, Job, whatever. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. And it's uh, usually two lines or three lines. All right, so that's kind of a stanza in Hebrew poetry. Two lines or three lines, bipartite or tripartite. And the two lines, they either say something once and then say it again in a slightly different way, or they say something once and then they say it again in a way that builds upon it, like builds it, expands it, or they say it one way and then say it's opposite in the other line. So those are basically the three types of uh, approaches that Hebrew poetry takes. That's why it sounds so repetitive to us. And, and the English doesn't transfer the, the, the assonance of the words and the meter and the cadence. So to us, it, it doesn't always sound poetic or memorable. But in Hebrew, it was both. And so that's just the place where we have to realize we're not reading English text, we're reading Hebrew text. So it doesn't, may not sound special to us, but it would have. It would have been more memorable. Um, like uh, uh, I'm trying to think of English saying like Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers, right? That's that's da, 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 right. But if you translated that into another language, it would make no sense and it wouldn't be memorable. It would just be like, who's this Peter guy? What's he picking and why? You know, like it. So anyway, just an example. Here's what he says. Then Bilam uttered this oracle. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. You see that? Balak brought me from Aram. He's going to say the same thing again. The king of Moab from the eastern mountains. See, the second thing qualifies the first and fills it out. So Balak is the king of Moab, and he brought him from Aram, which is in the eastern mountains. Which would be how you combine it together. This would be modern-day Syria, somewhere in that region. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? Again, two lines saying the same thing. From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a quarter of Israel? 
Let me die the death of the righteous. May my end be like theirs. That's the end. That's the first oracle. So, unpacking it, what he says to him is the first stanza. You brought me here to do this. You said, come on, curse Jacob for me. Denounce Israel. The response, what I'm telling you, how can I curse those who God has not cursed? How can I denounce the ones that, that the Lord has not denounced? In other words, you're asking me to do something I can't do. Because God has pronounced blessing on this people, going all the way back to their ancestor Abraham. I, can't, I cannot utter a... I can't... How would we say this in English? We, we think curse and we think like profanity or something, but it's not that. It's, I can't call down the power of the gods on this people because the only true God who has any power has already pronounced that they will prosper. So you're asking me to do something that I can't do. That would, what that would be conveyed in English. And then he says, from the rocky peaks, I see them from the heights, I view them. I, we're standing here on this barren place, on this rocky peak, this mountain path. And I'm looking at them. I'm viewing them. And verse 10, who can count? The dust of Israel, or the, excuse me, the, yeah, the, um, the dust of Jacob, the fourth part of Israel. Remember, Jacob and Israel are, are synonyms, because before he was ever named Israel, he was named Jacob. And so you can speak of the people as if they are the person. That corporate solidarity, we've seen that all the way since Genesis. In fact, this is directly, all of these oracles that Billam is going to give over these next two chapters are directly noting the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then unfolds through the rest of Genesis. Remember God said, I'll make your offspring like what? First of all, He said like the stars in the sky and like the sand of the sea or like the dust of the earth. Like These were promises God made. So now this pagan prophet who has no interaction with them up until now is, is recognizing and God's saying this is already set. You can't do what you're trying to do. And Balak needs to learn this lesson. But an interesting point here, and we're going to use this to take a quick detour in the book, and then we'll pick back up next week with the, the next oracle, is when he says, uh, 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? What's the name of this book? Numbers. What did the book start with? Numbering. Numbering. The people of Israel. So who can do this? Well, we've already done it. This is an example of what's called prophetic hyperbole. There's two things going on here, I, I would suggest. If you said, well, this is not literally true, because you can count the number, even if it were in the 2 million, which is the high end, or down to the 50, uh, 25 to 50,000, which is the low end, based on, as we've talked about, what the word thousands means in Hebrew. Regardless of which of those it is, you can number that. You can count that. So how can this be true? How can he say who can count, who can number? Well, there's, there's two aspects. One is prophetic hyperbole. Saying something, you're going to see this everywhere in the Old Testament. Hyperbole is exaggeration. And it's intended exaggeration. Everybody does it in the Bible. All the prophets exaggerated. It's not lying. It's not deceiving. It's like when we say, oh man, did you see the Hornets killed the Lakers the other night? We're not lying. Nobody would go, you're lying. No one died at that game. No, we're using sports hyperbole because that's a normal way we talk. 
right? How was your day? Um, or, or no, you know, like I've had the worst day ever. Well, no, that's not true. You haven't. But you're conveying something with a sense of emotion. So number one, keep that in mind because both fundamentalists and liberal skeptics miss that basic point when reading the Bible. And so they try to press for this crass literalism either to uphold it and harmonize it or to disprove it and show that it's wrong. Both of those completely miss the point. The prophets used hyperbole. The Bible uses exaggeration. You're going to see it in the book of Joshua when it talks about whole towns being wiped out to the last man, woman, and child. But then later you see people from those towns that weren't wiped out. And you go, wait a minute, how do we harmonize this? Well, you don't try to harmonize it. You recognize prophetic biblical hyperbole and let it be what it is. And so that's what we have here. Who can number them? Well, that's a way of saying this is no longer just this subjugated group of, this is no longer the 72 people who went down into Egypt. This is now the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Israel, and they've grown into a vast multitude. So that's prophetic hyperbole. But it's also a prophetic utterance, oracle, looking across the prophetic horizon and realizing that this is, has a fuller um, fulfillment in the future. There, this is not just limited to now. What Billam's doing, and we'll see this in all the oracles, all four of them, he, he uses the, the, or he sees what's happening now as a gateway or, or as a vista to what's going to happen on the horizon. So he'll talk about things like a star coming out of it, and, and that's the Messiah, that's the king, that's the leader. But that's not now, it's in the future. So that's what gives this prophetic significance. And the detour we'll take in this last five minutes, if you have your Bible, which you should have your Bible at a Bible study. I will not shame you or guilt you publicly, but I will do it in my mind. Bring your Bibles. Um, if you have your Bible, you turn to Revelation, all the way to the last book of the Bible, and Revelation draws on the book of Numbers. In Revelation chapter 7, and I'm just going to speed through this. If you want to know more, go on jmsmith.org, order a copy of Revelation, a guided tour of the apocalypse, DVD. We walk you through each chapter and we deal with this at length. But I'll just say this to whet your appetite. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 7, Jesus as the Lamb, the figure in Revelation, is opening these scrolls and letting loose these events that are happening all over the world. And then right before the end, he hears right before the hammer's about to drop and this, this what seems to be the final judgment is going to come. Then in chapter 7, an angel pauses him. Verse 3 says, do, no, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Which draws on another Old Testament tradition. I think from Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Then, uh, verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Now, this is familiar to us because we're in the book of Numbers. This is a Numbers census. This is a census of the fighting men of Israel, which is what the, number, the book of Numbers began with, and it's what's going to happen in a few chapters, chapter 26. This is what it's drawing from. This is a military census. So, John, the seer in this vision, here is, hey, seal up the servants of our gods before all this bad stuff happens so that I know who's who, which is based on another Old Testament event. And then he says, and then I heard 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Okay, makes sense. He goes out, lists them all in a military census. 
Verse 9, after this I looked. So what he heard was military tribe, uh, military census from the tribe of Israel. After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. That's seven. To be, be to God forever and ever. Then one of the elders asked me, Hey, these in white robes, this innumerable multitude who was described as the uh, army of Israel, who are they? Where do they come from? And I answered, uh, Sir, you know, meaning I don't. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great suffering or tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. That's Levitical language. They're dressed as Levitical priests, by the way. And He sits on the throne and will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. That's the language of Israel again. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7 gives this picture of the ultimate state, the status of God's people. It uses language from Leviticus. It uses imagery from Numbers. It uses imagery from the prophets. All of it puts it in a blender. It blends it up and it's just like, this is God's people. That's what it's described. How did it start? With a census based on the book of Numbers, military counting of the fighting men of Israel. So what does that mean? What it means, among other things, is people from every tribe, language, people, and nation are brought into the identity of God's people Israel. They're not replaced. God doesn't say, oh, I was cool with the Jews, but you're out of here. I got a new thing called the church. No, that's heresy. But it's also not two separate things like some popular teachers teach. Oh, the Jews, they have their thing with God, Old Testament, and we Christians have the New Testament. Heresy. No. Rather, it's this is the people of God, the seed of Abraham. From that seed will come the Messiah. The Messiah will be the embodiment of all of God's promises to all of God's people for all of God's time. And then that Messiah will inaugurate the new covenant which invites Gentiles to be grafted into that same tree that's been there all along. That is Israel. So there's no replacement. There's no separation. So, why do I harp on this? Because if you stand in faith with Israel's Messiah, no matter what language you speak, what color your skin is, what nation you were born in, or who your parents were, if you stand in faith with Israel's Messiah, you are Israel. That is a bedrock New Testament promise. Galatians 2, Ephesians 2, Revelation 7. It's everywhere in the New Testament. And we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, the book of Numbers that we're in becomes a book about them instead of the book about us. Our continuation of this. So when God says, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Hey, guess what? We've been brought into that. That applies to God's people. That has far less to do with what presidents bomb what countries in modern day world and far more to do with the destiny of God's covenant people who are in relationship with God's Messiah, Jesus. 
And so it's super important to keep that in mind in this last 30 seconds before we leave because what Billam is trying to do is set the whole project off the rails. Balak's saying, curse these guys. And Billam's saying, all right. And then he comes back and says, I can't do it. Why? Because Israel was the seed of Abraham. And Abraham was the one who God says, leave your people, go to a place I'll show you. If you do this, I'll make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. You will be a blessing. And the final, in you, in you, corporate, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So in this oracle, Bilaam sees, yeah, this is a people who aren't like the rest of the nations. This, this mass of former slaves gathered on the plains of Moab. They aren't like the former nations. They have been called out of the nations in order to reach the nations. That's the plan of God from beginning to end in the Bible. So Israel's destiny is the fate of the world literally is wrapped up in Israel's destiny at this point. And so for something to derail that would derail God's entire plan of reaching the world. So always keep that in mind. That's what's going on, but we're out of time. So we'll look at the next, we'll see Balak's reaction next week, and then we'll look at the second oracle that Billam gives as well. But until then, have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you then.